I don't have an MD or a law degree. I have a bachelor's in kicking butt and taking names. I get paid to talk. What do you talk about? I speak on behalf of cigarettes. My mommy says that cigarettes kill. Now, is your mommy a doctor? No. Well, she doesn't exactly sound like a credible expert now, does she? Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. That was Aaron Eckhart in the film Thank You for Smoking. Fantastic movie. He played one of the merchants of death, as they called him. <laughs> the MOD, the Mod Squad, I believe. There was him. There was a lobbyist for guns and a lobbyist for alcohol. The three of them would get together and uh, think about all the people that they were effect- essentially killing, I suppose. Uh, but we, the reason why we're playing that is because today is World No Tobacco Day. And we get a news release from Imperial Tobacco Canada. So right away, my I've got an eyebrow raised. I'm like, what, what can the tobacco company want to say to us on World No Tobacco Day? But they have a concern to bring to the table. So Eric Gagnon is the head of external and corporate affairs with Imperial Tobacco Canada. And we spoke with him earlier and had a rather honest conversation, starting by asking just first of all, what brands of cigarettes are under the Imperial banner? Yeah, so we have uh, brands like Du Maurier, Players, Peter Jackson, Pall Mall. Uh, so we're the biggest legal tobacco company in Canada with approximately 50% of the market right now. So it's World No Tobacco Day. Mm-hmm. Imperial Tobacco reached out to us on this day. So I'm wondering, what is the concern that is top of mind for you and Imperial Tobacco? Well, on World No Tobacco Day, we, uh, we've reached out uh, publicly to uh, the media um, asking for the federal health minister to explain the um, discrepancies uh, in the, gov- the way the government is approaching regulation for tobacco and for marijuana. And I think a couple of examples is um, uh, the government is now moving forward with plain packaging of tobacco products, despite the fact that uh, tobacco products already have a 75% health warning and the fact that the products are hidden from public view, what the government wants to do is take away the brand element on the pack also. Uh, but for marijuana, uh, when you look at the bill that is presently in the House of Commons, it doesn't uh, introduce plain packaging. The only thing it says is it should not be appealing to youth, which makes sense to us, but we believe that tobacco products should be treated the same way. Another example is the government right now has a public consultation in which there are uh, proposing potentially increasing smoking age for cigarettes to 21 years old, but we know that the government is saying that marijuana will be 18. And finally, the government, when talking about marijuana, says that it's important that excise and taxes on marijuana products uh, remain fairly low in order to compete with the legal market, when we know that in Canada right now, probably 80% of the price of a tobacco product is taxes, which created uh, an, uh, an important illegal market in the country. Right now, 20 to 25 percent of the market in Canada is already illegal because of excessive taxation. So that's some of the discrepancies we're seeing in both marijuana and tobacco, and, and we just would like to understand what is driving this discrepancy. There's also a gigantic discrepancy between the way tobacco and alcohol can be marketed and displayed. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, and you know, latest data from the government uh, from StatsCan say that right now in Canada, three percent of of Canadian youth are smoking 
uh, cigarettes on a daily basis. 17% of Canadian youth are smoking marijuana and 45% of Canadian youth are, sm- are drinking alcohol. Yet the number one priority to protect our Canadian youth is to introduce plain packaging, like I said, on a product that already has a 75% health warning and is hidden from public view. And these are the types of excessive measures that we cannot agree with. As a legal company, we believe we still have the right to sell our product to adults that have made a conscious decision to smoke in. Uh, but you're right. I mean, um, it, it, it appears that tobacco remains an easy target. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, an easy political win when the government stands up and says we're going to make sure that kids don't smoke. But at the end of the day, we believe that those measures will not have a, uh, an impact on public health, uh, but it's just a PR stunt. I bring up that example because I think there's a belief amongst parents, amongst lawmakers, that there's a stronger correlation uh, between users of marijuana and users of alcohol versus users of marijuana and users of tobacco products. Where do you see that? Yeah, I think that's some of the study. And I think also when you look at what's happening in the U.S. is is probably right, is the people who are using marijuana probably, uh, it's going to impact probably more the alcohol industry. Now, just to be clear, though, I'm, I'm not for or against marijuana legalization, nor do I say that it's going to have an impact on cigarette sales. That's not the point, though. But I think we can all agree that to some extent, uh, marijuana, alcohol, tobacco uh, are, are products that have a health impact. They cause important health risks. Um, and what we're saying is that we believe that um, the regulation that is imposed on the tobacco industry should not be different than the one from the marijuana industry. Um, the end goal in both cases uh, stated by the government is to protect youth. So if you don't need plain pack to protect youth from marijuana, um, there's no justification to say that you should have plain pack to protect youth from mm, cigarette either. Oh, then that's fair. I, I think I, I somewhat agree with you. But uh, on the other side of that coin, Eric, as somebody who is now, I've managed to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't speak to the how addictive marijuana is, uh, and same, and I know that alcohol it affects different people. But of those three. Cigarettes are the most addictive, I think that's probably safe to say, and cigarettes kill more people than the other two products. Yeah, well, there are important health risks associated with smoking, and I'm not denying that. Um, I think there's important health risks with marijuana, and I think there's a lot of reports right now that would uh, argue that marijuana, especially for young people, is is really harmful. But the point is, you know, everybody is aware of the health risks associated with smoking, and the real question is, why do people, especially youth, why do they start smoking? And, and the studies by the government say that 75% of kids that start smoking start smoking because their parents smoke or their friends and family smoke. Nobody starts smoking because of the pack, especially the fact that the pack is not hidden from public view. Um, when you look at the bill that is in the Senate right now, which is Bill S-5, uh, it's the bill that wants to regulate tobacco even further. The government is also proposing, for example, to remove the trademark on the cigarette, saying that because of that trademark on the cigarette, we young people will start to smoke. I mean, this is ridiculous. Nobody starts smoking because of the logo or the brand. Um, and that's the type of excessive me- measures that we cannot support. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have two kids. I don't want my kids to smoke. It's a harmful product. But at the end of the day, um, we will support reasonable and evidence-based regulation, especially the ones that aimed at keeping the t- 
tobacco products out of the hand of kids. But what we're seeing today in Canada is, is excessive regulation that will appease uh, a very small but vocal group of anti-tobacco lobbyists, but w- that will not have a positive impact on public health. And that's what we're opposing. Eric Gagno is our guest. It's World No Tobacco Day. Eric is head of external and corporate affairs with Imperial Tobacco Canada. Eric, I have to ask you, this sounds a lot like the rhetoric that came in, and I apologize for using that word. Uh, this is a, a polite conversation, so I apologize yeah, yeah. for using the word, but it's the same sort of language that we heard when uh, tobacco companies were forced to stop advertising, and then the elimination of what was known in the retail space as the power wall, and, and the fact that uh, that cigarettes went behind uh, a non-labeled uh, situation in terms of display and storage within, within, uh, within stores. Uh, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of people smoking, although young people do begin smoking. Is there an acknowledgement that those changes in legislation, uh, marketing restrictions, has worked? Well, first of all, I wasn't there at that time, so I, I, I'm not going to comment on that. What I can tell you, though, is when you look at smoking rates in Canada, um, they have started to decline back in the 1950s way before the advertisement ban, way before excessive excise, way before uh, the, you know, the uh, hidden from public view and convenience stores, that decline rate has continued to 1% to 2% year on year, despite everything that the government has introduced. Um, and you can look into the data, uh, and, and we've been sharing that information. The point is people are aware that smoking is not good for you, and there's less and less people smoking. Um, and so if you're asking me if one thing has really accelerated that decline, the answer is no. And on plain packaging, it's the same thing. The only country where plain pack has been introduced long enough uh, is Australia. They've introduced plain packaging in 2012. And the, uh, you know, the anti-tobacco group's uh, argument for plain pack is to say it's working because Australia has the lowest smoking rates of all the time in their country. Well, obviously, because it's a decline in market. Year on year, you're at your all-time low. In Canada, we are at an all-time low. And the other example is U.S. U.S. doesn't have all the excessive regulations that we have in Canada, yet their smoking incidence is exactly the same as Canada, and the smoking decline rate over the last 20, 30 years is the same as ours. So I think in general what we're saying is, you know, there needs to be some regulation. It's a harmful product. We don't deny that. But at one point, where does it end with, you know, taking away the trademarks of the brands? And, and, you know, one of the concerns we have is once you're not able to have your logo on your pack or your trademark on your pack, how is it uh, possible to differentiate illegal from an illegal product? Um, And we already have an important contraband problem. And I think what we're going to be faced with in this country is going to be a counterfeit issue. Um, and, And it's going to be impossible for consumers, for retailers or for law enforcement to distinguish between legal and illegal brands. One final question here before we wrap it up, Eric. Uh, where does vaping fit into all of this uh, e-cigarettes? As far as Imperial Tobacco is concerned, where do you think uh, this uh, vaping enters the discussion? Well, vaping is very important in the discussion. I mean, if you know the government has stated that their objective is to reduce smoking incidents to below 5% by 2035, 
Um, and some of the studies that are coming out from very, very credible health groups like the Royal College of Physicians in the UK say vaping products are probably 95% safer than traditional cigarettes. Um, so the bill I've mentioned earlier, Bill S5, is going to legalize vaping products in Canada because right now all legal all vaping products with nicotine remain illegal. Although they're being sold everywhere, they're not legal. So that's a good thing. Uh, making those products available to consumers who want to quit smoking, I think, is a very good thing. The challenge, though, is when you and, and this is the case in most provinces, um, provinces have regulated these products as a tobacco product, so it becomes impossible for you know retailers or manufacturers to even talk about the product. So if you want consumers to quit smoking traditional cigarettes and to try to use vaping products, um, you have to have the ability to talk about the product. And I think moving forward, provinces and the federal government will have to evaluate that because it, if the consumers are not aware, they're going to continue smoking cigarettes, which is from a public health perspective, not the right thing. Eric, I just have to ask you, do you get the sense that the government really would genuinely like to put Imperial Tobacco and your competitors out of business? You know, if that's the end goal, uh, some of the anti-tobacco groups have said it uh, publicly. They, they'd like to see the legal industry disappear. The problem with that is that people won't stop smoking and 100% of the market will become illegal. Um, and, you know, the government said prohibition doesn't work for marijuana. It certainly it didn't work for alcohol in the past, and it certainly wouldn't work for alcohol. So I think I see this more as we're part of the solution and not the problem. Um, you know, we'd love to sit down with Health Canada and the health minister, but they don't want to talk to us. But I think we can um, help the government achieve its goal of 5% by 2035 by uh, making less harmful products available. My parent company in London has invested more than 500 million pounds in the last three years to find less harmful products and to put these products in the market. But we need to work with government officials to try to make these products available to consumers. Eric Gagnon is head of external and corporate affairs, Imperial Tobacco Canada. So what do you think of what Eric just had to say? 204-780-6868. It's a number to call. It is the number to text. You can also email brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. Do you think the government is too hard on tobacco companies? Unfairly so. Are they genuinely trying to put them out of business? And if so, if so should they be doing that? Uh, because we know how prohibition worked with alcohol. Not very well. So is there a balance to be struck here, and are we striking it nicely? We'd like your feedback on this, 780-6868. By talk or text, we always appreciate the phone calls. We love to hear your opinions in your own voice. We're getting lots of texts. Would like a couple of phone calls here just to have you tell us how you feel, how tobacco companies are being treated. Are they being treated fairly, unfairly, somewhere in between? Are we on the right track in striking a balance about a product that, Probably isn't going anywhere, Brett, whether it's legal or illegal. Yeah, whether you like it or not. We we don't want to make it sound like we are advocating for big tobacco or for cigarettes. I have made no uh, effort to hide the fact that I was a smoker and I quit smoking finally. It took me a long time, but cigarettes are not going anywhere. So we're just trying to w- figure out what the best way to go about it is. 204-780-6868, number to call or text your forecast is up next. 124 on this Wednesday afternoon. Great to have you along. I'm Greg. He's Brett. We're talking about smoking. We're talking about the tobacco companies. We 
visited with Eric Gagnon of Imperial Tobacco, telling us some of the concerns that the tobacco companies have about the way they're being treated by the government. They want some fairness as compared to the uh, plan to legalize marijuana. And we had a conversation with Eric. And Brett, you and I were prepared to go toe-to-toe with Eric on a few things. And he was uh, very conciliatory, and I I found him a a pleasure to converse with. I think there's a reason why he's in that job. He's very good at his job, and I think that we both, as you mentioned, we, we kind of went in thinking the interview was going to go one way, and it went another way, and to hear him say, I don't want my kids smoking, that was, I found that honesty refreshing. So we're just wondering what your reaction was to that conversation. On this day, World No Tobacco Day, Lorna is at 204-780-6868. Hi, Lorna, what do you have to say? Hi there. Um, well, I certainly can understand... Um from the business perspective, uh, Mr. Gagnon's point of view, I mean, as you said, he was very conciliatory and said openly he doesn't want his kids to smoke. I don't, I don't want my kids to smoke. I'm, I don't want my friends to smoke. It's definitely a dangerous product. Um, I know they've been regulated very heavily, and what has bothered me about it is this: uh, they want to go to plain packaging. I think that would be more appealing to teenagers because they're not going to see those um, frightening pictures. Mm. They're not going to see the, the, like, we don't see the nicotine um, content and all the other, um, you know, horrible things in the cigarettes on the packaging anymore. And I was a smoker, so I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, What really concerns me is what, um, that they're focusing on the smoking of cigarettes and not really talking about Marijuana. Marijuana is going to make the government a lot more money than smoking, um, well, did at first. I'm, I'm sure the marijuana industry will take over. Um, I know smoking kills a lot of people, but really, because marijuana hasn't been legalized, um, how does one track how many people die from marijuana use? The tar in marijuana is probably one, if you take a joint, um, I read when I was in university that it was the equivalent uh, in tar of one cigarette that was, uh, pardon me, one joint has the equivalent of six um, cigarettes in the amount of tar it has. And that that's what coats our lungs. So to put plain packaging on cigarettes, I don't think is going to uh, deter anyone from smoking. And I know people who smoke marijuana and smoke cigarettes afterwards because it keeps the buzz going. Mm, interesting. That's a great and, point, Lorna. And unfortunately, Lorna, I'm really sorry, but we have got to uh, break for news. I would like to take a couple more minutes, though, to continue this chat after Global News at 1.30 if we can on World No Tobacco Day. I'm Brett. He's Greg. The news is next. I'm Greg. He's Brett. One thirty-four. Wednesday afternoon, absolutely glorious day in southern Manitoba, all across the province, as I understand it. So uh, get used to it. Could be like this for a few days. We're talking about smoking. We're talking about the dis- the tobacco industry and the discrepancy, it feels, that's being levied and created between the emerging marijuana economy and those that will be producing, selling, distributing marijuana, and the restrictions being placed that have been in place for a long time on uh, tobacco companies. Uh, I can remember when tobacco was, in fact, advertised. They sponsored things like the Players' Cup tennis tournament, the Du Maurier Classic golf tournament, had their names on the race cars and all sorts of different things. I think 
they might have even uh, supported hockey or football broadcasts along the way. Colts, they did. I remember Colts did a quarterback competition, superstar CFL, superstar uh, old Colts, old port or whatever it was okay. called. So back in the day. So, you know, uh, things have changed dramatically since the mid 70s and into the 80s in terms of the way these products are sold, distributed and certainly displayed and advertised uh, non-existent. So we had a conversation with Eric Gagnon of uh, Imperial Tobacco today. He brought up some good points. Uh, one one of our listeners is a little suspicious of. Yes. And that's Gary, the courier, who says he, he quotes Eric Gagnon, I don't want my kids to smoke is a talking point. I don't believe him. Interesting. That's one of the things that caught Greg and I off guard was how honest he was in volunteering that. It wasn't one of the things where we had to kind of back him into a corner and say, listen here, big tobacco, Eric. Do you have kids? Do you want them to smoke? No, he just came out and said, I don't want my kids to smoke. This is, I know this is a, uh, an unhealthy product. Just like marijuana is unhealthy, just like alcohol is unhealthy, and there should be regulations. But maybe the, the regulations on tobacco are too harsh. He, you know, he talked about how there's already a, a significant contraband market in this country for cigarettes. We hear more and more about this from RCMP. Did he suggest it was close to 25% of all cigarettes sold in Canada are counterfeit? I think he said something along those lines. I'd have to go back and double-check the tape. But one of the numbers that I do remember is him saying that 80% of the cost of cigarettes, as far as a consumer is concerned, is taxes. So if you pay 20 bucks for a pack of smokes or whatever, 80% of that is going to the government. And in many ways, I think that the—I've often wondered, are these— products overtaxed and in the sense that they are pointing people who really want to smoke but maybe can't afford it are they pointing them to the the black market or to other ways where they can get around the taxes for me it ended up being one of the deterrents that got me off of cigarettes because a it was i know it's bad for you i don't think anybody who smokes will say oh no this is good for you it's part of a complete breakfast haven't you heard there's new research that indicates this is really good for you you're in the dark ages <laughs> nobody's saying that no no one's saying that but it wasn't enough it wasn't just the health it was the health and the fact that when i started smoking again full-time that it was draining my bank account so i finally said okay that's it i'm just i'm out and i it took me a year but i got out and the cost of it was so in that sense Jacking up the price of cigarettes does have that deterrent effect for some people. I was one of them. And it's one of the common comments we're getting at 780-6868 that the government cannot afford for tobacco to go away, for it to be illegal. They depend too much on the revenue. Are you interested in the revenue numbers? Yes, if you have some, Andy. I do. $256,100,000 approximately in 2015 was the amount of money the Manitoba government brought in from tobacco taxes. Wow. That represents roughly 1% of PST. When they raised, when the NDP raised the PST by one percentage point, yeah. it was estimated that that would bring in about 300 to $330 million of revenue. So that's what that represents. Roughly 1% increase, 0.75, give or take, of a percentage point on the PST. Right across Canada, it represents $8.34 billion for the federal government and all the provinces combined. Okay. 
For the federal government, it's $3.25 billion. I know numbers and radio don't always go well together, but here's the contrast. In Manitoba in 2016, we spent $7.12 billion on health care, okay. 42% of our budget. And $256 million was brought in in tobacco taxes. A lot of people point to the fact that I'm paying for my own health care. I don't know if you can really make that argument. $256 million versus $7.12 billion. There's a gigantic discrepancy there. And I'm not saying every single illness that we experience is because of smoking. But it's a it's a really it's a it's a, a it's really a drop in the bucket yeah. versus the overall healthcare budget. Seven billion dollars, yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, oh, Gary the Courier, he's he's sticking to it. No, it's a talking point. He's a drug dealer, and Gary, that's fair. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to to talk to Imperial Tobacco because I was just flat out uh, curious that on World No Tobacco Day that a tobacco company was willing to put somebody up to talk to us to essentially step into the line of fire. That was actually part of the sales pitch, in fact. Mm-hmm. We'd like to put present someone for you to talk to and debate with. They fully expected a debate. Here's a text from a guy named Alan who says, I am a father of 10. Sorry, that took me a moment to compute that. <laughs> I am a father of 10. Six girls, four boys. My boys in early 20s and teens have been experimenting with marijuana. I am opposed to both smoking and weed because of the dangers of both. For decades, smoking was allowed to promote themselves. I believe marijuana will one day be found to be a danger to smoke, to consume, but the government's ability to benefit from taxes will override the dangers now overlooked. So I agree with tobacco. They should treat both the same, talking about tobacco and marijuana in terms of its packaging. So I think they should treat both the same no matter how inviting pot may be presently. Thanks for listening to me, a concerned dad. Alan, thank you for that. You know, we know what a scourge alcohol is in terms of drinking and driving. And the use of that product is incredibly dangerous, not only on the roads, but not good for our health uh, long term either, if it's abused, just like anything else. Yet there are dramatically different policies from government in terms of how you're allowed to market and present alcohol. You go into a liquor store, uh, you've got all these beautiful colored packages and everything's displayed in this uh, beautiful in Manitoba, these MLCC stores, which are some of the nicest retail locations that sell anything in our province. It's sensory overload. Mm -hmm. You can now have, in fact... Didn't the CRTC back off years ago in terms of the time of day? There used to be a time of day restriction oh. on alcohol, alcoholic commercials. In fact, I think you could only advertise up until a few years ago beer. Now you see ads for Crown Royal, for vodka, all these different hard alcohols that for years, I don't think you could advertise on television. If you know differently, let me know. But that's the way I remember it. And so alcohol has been very much normalized within our society in terms of consumption and the way we feel about talking about it and and how social it is. You're a social outcast now to a great extent if you smoke cigarettes. Yeah, that's true. Oh, you smoke. Oh, go away. You stink. 
how dare, how can you put that in your body as somebody who's just had 15 uh, vodka and OJ is stumbling down the street? You smoke. Yeah. You're disgusting. <laughs> uh, well, and it's in terms of the packaging argument that cigarettes should be in, in plain packages, I've always found that curious. And I realize that my experience is not the same as everybody else. But when they first introduced the labels, the warning labels with the images, so they already had the warning on it, and they, they increased the warning to include the, the graphic images. I collected them like baseball cards. You did I not. did. I was in my early 20s, and I remember going into 7-Eleven, and uh, the guy gave me a pack of Players Light, and I said, oh, no, I got this one already. Can you, do you have the mouth diseases one? And he looked at me, and I, the look on his face was of such contempt and disgust. And he begrudgingly picked up the pack, put it back on the shelf, and looked around and found the mouth disease as one. And then I said to my, turned around to my buddies and said, yeah, I don't have this one yet. The packaging did nothing to change my thoughts on cigarettes at all meant zero. It had no effect on whether or not I wanted to smoke more or less. If anything, it actually encouraged me to smoke more when they first launched those labels because I was young and stupid and didn't care about any of that stuff. I'm still stupid, just not young. I am absolutely speechless. (laughs) I thought I knew a lot about you. We're just scratching the surface, aren't we? (laughs) That's Brett McGarry. Uh, Brett at CGOB.com. Why don't we take a pause? We'll update the weather forecast, which is absolutely fantastic. More of your text messages and and maybe a little commemoration. Today is uh, Jetsmas. If you don't know what that means, we'll tell you all about that when we come back. It's Greg and Brett. It is nice to be back in Winnipeg after all these years. I wish to thank Mr. Gary Bettman and the entire staff at the National Hockey League and my partner, David Thompson, who has been uh, absolutely steadfast throughout what at times was a very turbulent process. It is clear that times have changed for Winnipeg as an NHL market, and this is a wonderful time to add a club to Canada. Hockey in Canada has never been stronger. We get to be back in a place we wish we hadn't left in 1996. NHL, welcome home. As is obvious by the fact that we're here today, True North and Atlantic Spirit, early this morning reached an agreement. I am excited beyond words to announce our purchase of the Atlanta Thrashers. In a sense, I guess you could say that True North, our city and our province, has received the call we've long since been waiting for. Today, we walk with confidence. Today, we walk with a feeling that anything is possible. We get to be back in a place we wish we hadn't left in 1996. As we have said repeatedly, we don't like to move franchises. But sometimes we simply have no choice. Selling 13,000 season tickets is the best message to send to the NHL Board of Governors. And I personally have no reservation in this community's ability to do so. How's 13,000 season tickets in about four days? Good chunk of that in about 15 minutes. Mary Jetsmas, May 31st, 2011, was the day that the NHL officially returned to Winnipeg. Gary Bettman, you're the voice of Mark Chipman, Greg Selinger, 
I'm trying to figure out who else we heard in there in that montage uh, produced by Kelly Moore. It was a great day to be sure. Keith McCullough joins us in studio now. I'm Greg Mackling. He's Brett McGarry. And Keith, I look back on the week and few days leading up to that announcement on May 31st. It was an incredible time in our city. It's almost surreal to look back. On it now. Ex-Mayor Sam Cates leading a conga line at the Forks in that street hockey game that broke out at Portage in Maine after that news conference happened. I remember being there interviewing Dancing Gabe on the corner of Portage in Maine, and he called it the greatest day of his life. And I think that would be the case for probably a lot of Winnipeggers. Probably for you, Greg, it would have to be up there for you in terms of, you know, getting married and the birth of your kids and all that stuff, obviously above it. Do but I have to rank them on the air? It's got to be uh, pretty high for a lot of people in terms of in terms of feeling proud again to be a Winnipegger. And, and not that the city wasn't still doing great things, but I think that's one of those moments where you look back and especially young people who maybe were a little down on Winnipeg at that point. I think that's one of those days where people started feeling like Winnipeg was going places and Winnipeg was was kind of cool again the day that the Winnipeg Jets came back. And it's hard to believe, guys, that it's been six years now. Brett, does this did this have any sort of effect, anything that, that Keith just said and at the time? I mean, you can be perfectly honest about it. Uh, I actually was at Portage in Maine, oddly enough. I was at the King's Head that night with some friends, and the news broke that this was happening and then uh so we left the king's head and i believe i think we may have stopped at the woodbine and and restocked certain supplies interesting and then sort of wandered over to portage in maine and i saw the guys playing hockey and everybody was chanting go jets go it was a little still surreal for me uh, because i had always i had sort of been I was one of those guys who thought that it would never happen that it was a pipe dream and that all the the, the former all the hockey fans should just let it go. It's not going to happen. So I was proven wrong and, and happy to be proven wrong when I saw how excited people were. As someone who used to get just about into fist fights with people about, A, the reason the Jets left in <laughs> April of 96 in the first place, and then very quickly, you know, early in the 2000s, uh, doing my homework, and uh, I'll give credit to Darren Ford, who started the JetsOwner.com website, who started talking and really putting out in the public vein some of the numbers, some of the things that might have to happen in order for an NHL team to to come around and to come back to Winnipeg and to really build the case. Because, Keith, as you know, some of the harshest people on how they view and as to how they view Winnipeg live right here in this city. And I think there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that didn't believe the NHL was coming back to Winnipeg, maybe until the end of April 2011, when the conversation about the Phoenix Coyotes maybe moving back to Winnipeg started to be a topic of conversation. Yeah, I remember that. We would hear every couple weeks about some hearing in Phoenix, and we're all zoned in on Phoenix, and then... Typical Mark Chipman and typical low-key True North doing their work in the shadows, behind the scenes. We get kind of surprised, you know, not all that long before it, from when we first started hearing about it to when it actually happened, that it might indeed be the Atlanta Thrashers that were the team more likely to make their way back to Winnipeg. So it's hard to 
it's hard to pinpoint and maybe you would be better at it than me greg but exactly when it went from pipe dream probably not going to happen to hey this might happen to oh my gosh the nhl is back in winnipeg and i think it's a testament to mark chipman that he's probably along with david thompson the other owner and a couple other people in his circle they're probably the only ones that really know the answer to that question because they were pulling all of these strings that we didn't see in the media or in the public we didn't see all the work that they were doing over the years with the manitoba moose to kind of put the different rungs on the ladder to get the winnipeg jets back it's interesting because a lot of the national media even when the announcement was made that atlanta was moving to winnipeg the conversation started before the ink was even dry on the agreement between true north and the nhl that oh well david thompson's involved he's a southern ontario guy he's just going to flip the jets from winnipeg to southern ontario there's no way this is a long-term play for him thompson doesn't do anything unless he makes money at it etc etc all the questions as you said as they were building the ladder fascinating right down to well they'll never be named the Jets. Well, of course uh, they were. Well, if you name them the Jets, nobody's going to buy any merchandise. Well, we all know that that's bogus as well. The list of things that people said never were going to happen and were impossibilities is gigantic. I have 11 things on this list and they've all been crossed off. There's only one left to do and that's for the Jets to become a genuinely competitive team. Win a playoff game, yeah. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? And it's interesting, guys, and this is a conversation we'll have, I think, throughout the afternoon. Christian O'Mell working on a piece right now on where the Jets are after six years and what's the impact that the Winnipeg Jets have had on the community since they came back in 2011. Is it? I think I would argue it is a tangible difference in downtown and the feeling around Winnipeg since 2011, now that we're into the sixth year, 2017, of having the Winnipeg Jets back? And is the honeymoon wearing off at all? Is the shine coming off having the NHL back in Winnipeg now that the Jets have, you know, have been back for a while and haven't been able to have that playoff success yet? Where do people stand, I guess, is the question, now six years after that great day at Portage and Maine? Global's Keith McCullough, my co-host on Sports Sunday. It is coming up to 2 o'clock. After the news, we will talk about what should the price be for minimum wage. Thanks for your calls, texts, emails on our first hour of conversation about tobacco. How's the tobacco industry being treated fairly, unfairly, somewhere in between? Taxation, we had a conversation about the amount of tax that tobacco generates for the provinces and for the federal government in case you missed the number in manitoba it's about 256 million dollars the equivalent of one percentage point of the pst so uh you put that versus four point pardon me 7.12 billion dollars just on health care uh you can have a debate as to whether or not it's even enough revenue uh based on the health concerns that tobacco Generates. We also had a brief conversation with Keith McCullough on this Jets Miss Day, May 31st, six years since the Winnipeg Jets and the National Hockey League returned to Winnipeg. I'm Greg, he's Brett. And right now we want to talk about minimum wage. And the headline on a news release that we got here, businesses warn $15 minimum wage means higher prices and lost jobs. So we are reaching out to someone by the name of Bruce Hine, who is the owner of Express Employment in Ontario, and he joins us now live. 
on the 680 CJOB. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Did I pronounce your last name correctly, by the way? You got it correct. Okay, very good. Thank you for that. Uh, So this new survey that you have sent out here is revealing how businesses would react to a minimum wage increase to $15 an hour. So what's the, the big finding that jumps out at you right away? Well, I think the biggest fear is that uh, raising the minimum wage in Ontario to the level that they're proposing could have adverse effects on hiring people. Uh, Many of our businesses are still struggling to climb out of the recession and find their way in today's marketplace, and adding extra cost uh, in, in large leaps could have an adverse effect to the numbers of people that actually do hire. What types of jobs uh, are people doing for minimum wage these days, Bruce? Well, I think a lot of it's entry-level work. It's uh, sometimes people call it unskilled work or entry-level. Um, uh, we have certain markets that might be production. When I mean production, it could be warehouse, logistic, pick and pack, sorting, things of that nature. Um, I'm sure that the service in- industry um, will be affected by this, retail, etc., now, I'm curious to know, and this maybe is a, a little too big a question here, but I'm curious to know what you think about the domino effect on uh, that happens after in minimum wage goes up. When minimum wage is increased, there is a concern often raised by businesses that, well, it's going to raise this and it's going to cause this. So what do, you for, what do you see as the domino effect? Well, there's a couple of things that can occur. Um, I mentioned one, eliminating positions. If, if companies only have so many dollars that they can dedicate in their, in their budget line towards uh, wages, um, that could cause some of those positions to be eliminated. They could automate positions, forcing uh, this, this increase could force companies to invest in automation, eliminating the need for, for workers. Um, wage incre- or price increases on, on finished products. Um, uh, a number of statistics, you know, increase uh, uh, price of goods and services. Forty percent are concerned of the businesses are concerned that 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 will have an adverse effect. And remaining competitive in today's marketplace is is critical. A lot of research seems to be done about the cascading ramifications of increasing the minimum wage in terms of cost and cost of jobs and finished products, as you mentioned, Bruce, and the idea that uh, that that. Inflation is going to take over if we do this. How much should the minimum wage be? And if you're working for 40 hours a week, a full-time position, because my contention would be that service and entry-level work has become more prominent in our economy than it has ever been. And it's not just 15-year-olds flipping hamburgers at your uh, corner restaurant that are working in these jobs. These are heads of households now. Our economy has changed dramatically in the last 25 years. Well, I can say in Ontario, um, across the board, we have a number of our offices. We're, I think we have 25 offices in, in the province of Ontario um, that are a franchise operation. We have many unfilled orders uh, with clients having demand for people to come in and work in their, in their, uh, in their establishments. Um, a lot of the challenges we're finding is just having people uh, come to work, show up for work uh, with the right attitude, uh, with the understanding they're expected to come to work every day. Uh, and I believe, because uh, I've been told this by customers, and we have uh, proof that customers will pay higher wages for good people. 
once they get established. Show me that you're worth more than 15, and uh, I believe you can get it. Uh, but the first step is to sh- show up every day with the right attitude. Any idea how much of an effect raising minimum wages in this country have on inflation? I, I wouldn't have those statistics in terms of bottom line. But uh, when you look at the large majority of companies that are saying, if we have to raise wages across the board, and some of our uh, factories or or warehouse environments that employ a large number of people, that could be significant in terms of their overall selling price, uh, because labor is uh, could be a, a big percentage of their their uh, overall price. So uh, I, again, I guess I just worry about the cascading effect in terms of eliminating positioning, automating companies being forced to automate more, potentially relocating the business out of the province or out of the country. Um, these are all things that we worry about, and and uh, you know. Uh, I know that to some extent, if I'm living in Toronto, it's it's tough to live off of the minimum wage. Um, it's tough in all communities, but I can certainly appreciate in some of the larger markets where cost of living is extremely high. Um, but I'm worried that, you know, we've got some of the more rural areas that this could really have an adverse effect. So I don't like subsidy to big business for, for creating uh, jobs. Uh, I understand that it's a part of our economy uh, Bruce, when I, when I hear people talk and converse in this fashion, it, what it tells me and it reinforces to me is that workers are actually subsidizing the prices of the products that we purchase. Well, I'm, they're a factor in the cost for sure. Um, it's a cost, uh, it's a line item on the budget or, uh, and it factors into what we pay uh, at the register. Who is doing the minimum wage jobs now? I mean, Greg and I were having a chat earlier this afternoon where we were saying when we were, when we had our minimum wage jobs, we were teenagers and we were surrounded largely by teenagers who were all sort of in the same segment of a population. But now, for example, when I walk into a fast food restaurant, I might not see a, a place that's just full of teenagers who are not yet in university. So who, is there sort of a leading segment of a pop- the population that is working minimum wage jobs? I don't see, from a demographic perspective, I don't see it being um, leaning any particular way. I suppose maybe um, some of our youth um, are faced because they don't have the work experience yet, so they're starting off. It's an entry uh, opportunity for them to get in with a company. Um, you know, I can tell you many of our offices that we work with uh, in Ontario, we don't even talk about minimum wage to our clients because we just know we can't find the, re- the resource that they're looking for. So we, we encourage the, all of our clients to, uh, to look at raising their, their wage expectations because that's the only way we're going to fill those roles and get people to show up for work. Yeah, good, good people are hard to find and even tougher to keep, Bruce. Yep. We appreciate you uh, coming on with us this afternoon. It's an interesting survey. 43% of businesses say that an increase in the minimum wage to $15 would force their business uh, to increase uh, the lower wages in the company, increase the price of goods or services. 34% of businesses say they do that. And I think this might be the most startling and bothersome number for anybody, no matter which side of this discussion you're on, 32% that it may force these businesses to eliminate positions, which is not really what we're going for in this day and age. You bet. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time.
All right, that is Bruce Hine. He is the owner of Express Employment in Ontario. Once again, they've done a survey which, in their mind, highlights real consequences of wage policies, uh, talking about the idea of raising the minimum wage in Ontario to 15 bucks an hour. So I guess the question is, what do you think minimum wage should be? Yes? I think that's a great basic question, great place to start. We're getting all sorts of text messages. Uh, the Manitoba government just in the last couple of weeks announcing that it will be tying the increase in minimum wage to the rate of inflation and even is going far so far as to say that that may not even be guaranteed in times of economic difficulties. Mm-hmm. And so what should it be? People are, are seem to be allergic to this idea of $15 an hour. What should it be? And a really great question that I have on my piece of paper here that has been touted for a decade by the provincial conservative party when they were in opposition, the idea of raising the basic minimum deduction. That certainly hasn't happened to this point in Manitoba. Is that something that's off the table? And is that really the best way to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish here? We'd love your feedback. 204-780-6868. Keep the text coming. We'd love to have a couple phone calls on minimum wage. What should it be in Manitoba? 204-780-6868 is the number to call. It's the number to text. You can email brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. Your forecast is up next. So what should the minimum wage in Manitoba be? Alberta and Ontario have both declared their intention over the next several years to move their minimum wages respectively to $15 an hour. What should it be in Manitoba? It is 11 bucks an hour right now. Ontario is 11.40 and Alberta is 12.20. Ryan is at 204-780-6868. Hey Ryan, what do you think minimum wage should be in Manitoba? Uh, minimum wage should be just a little higher, but you know, the, the government's saying that people can't live off the money we make. You know, we I've been through hard times in life and I make just above minimum wage. My wife makes a bit more than me, and we have children, we have a house, we have credit cards, we have vehicles, but we do just fine with what what, what we're getting paid now. Uh, I, I think people just need to budget their money more, and and we save enough money to even go on a family trip this summer. So I, everybody's getting all but the government or whoever saying that we can't make ends meet. We can make with ends meet with the money that we make. That's all is about budgeting and what's more important. It sounds like, needs. Ryan, it sounds like you are an extremely disciplined person when it comes to uh, where you spend your money. Well, I've been in a dumps where, you know, I, I was foolish with my money when I was younger and made some really bad mistakes and it caught up with me in life. And now I have to change that around to live because I have children to take care of and I have a wife and I have a, I have a roof I got to pay for and stuff. So. Yeah. You, you've you purchased a house as well, Ryan. I, I think I heard we're, you say we're, that. We're renters, so we're actually paying a bit more than a mortgage. With, right. You know, we're, yeah. What would it and take? We have, a, we have a vehicle and we have credit cards. Right. What would it take for to get you from uh, renting to uh, you know to being a, a homeowner? And is, is that realistic? Do you feel that that's something that you should be able to do based on the work that you do? I'm guessing you you and your wife sure. both work forty hours a week. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think we could. You know, if I was just smart with my money as I was younger, I have some debts I need to pay off. Right. And those debts, you know, are about 400 500 $600 a month. 
if I got rid of those debts, I could for sure put more money down on a mortgage and live comfortably. Ryan, and I yeah. please don't uh, ever take these conversations f- to putting people down that work hard. Uh, uh, I would never, no, ever want to come across that way in any way, shape, or form. Uh, no, some of the- I'm not coming across that either. I'm just coming across saying that if people just buckle down and instead of putting their wants over their needs, I'm sure they could do just fine. I think that's great advice no matter how much money you make, Brett. Ryan, right. indeed, Ryan. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Uh, and I mean, Ryan's right. There, I work Saturdays, Greg, because I have made poor decisions, <laughs> not because I love being here. So I'm digging myself out of a hole, so to speak. Hole's almost been filled, uh, and maybe I'll one day get off of those weekend shifts. Uh, but in the meantime, I need to follow Ryan's advice. Uh, we have a call here from somebody named John, before referring to Ontario's plans to go to 15 bucks are they crazy doesn't ontario government realize that it's going to have a snowball effect from restaurants to supermarkets on inflation ridiculous john thanks john appreciate it you know i know grocery stores a lot of minimum wage workers um there food prices man food prices are high lots of stuff is as high as it's ever been uh, to the point where we are making different decisions in our house as to what we buy, how much we buy, how often we're consuming certain things. Uh, the best example is uh, we do a lot of shopping at Costco and they have this beautiful salmon that is, it's it's fantastic, uh, but it's gone from about $22 for a, for a really nice big filet mm-hmm. of it about five, six years ago. Now it's like up over $30 Oh wow! for the same piece of fish. The price of pork has gone up dramatically. Uh, you know what? I, I understand a lot of the concerns. I used to be a business owner. I still, you know, uh, dabble in uh, real estate stuff, but I don't know. I just, when you work 40 hours a week... And you work your fingers to the bone for a company. I think you, there are certain things that you, you should be expecting. And I'm not saying that, you know, you should be able to go out to eat dinner every night, but you should be able to do certain things. And I think there are a lot of people. Ryan, I think, is the exception to a lot of the rules. I don't know. I just, uh, I'm not sure 11 bucks an hour is cutting it if you're the head of a household. Here's a text message at 204-780-6868. Instead of increasing minimum wage, government should increase the basic personal tax exemption. That way, lower-income people can actually keep more of their money. Increasing minimum wage only increases the amount of taxes everybody pays to the government, and it doesn't really help lower-class people. I think that's a great idea. As I mentioned in the last segment, something that the Conservative Party, when they were in opposition, touted as one of the answers. Uh, they certainly haven't moved towards that. This is a great text. and I know I mentioned question. Uh, Costco, rather. Apparently, Costco never received the memo that paying employees far higher than minimum wage increases prices and reduces the amount of employees hired. That's true. Costco has been, uh, they've always been known for paying well. I know people who got jobs at Costco out of high school and they're still working for Costco. They've climbed the chain or they've climbed the ladder there because it provided them with such great opportunities. Coming up to the 2.30 news on 680 CJOB. After Global News at 2.30, we're going to talk about Skills Canada. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you. Brett, I don't know if we can mention this enough, the fact that Furmore and St. Mary's is still closed. Avoid that area like the plague. 
because it was a disaster in the morning rush hour, and there's no guarantee it'll be open in time for a rush hour this afternoon. If you have any updates on that situation, as we just received via text 780-6868, please feel free to pass those along. It is time now to talk about something called the 2017 Skills Canada National Competition. And rather than us try to stumble through and explain what it is, let's let our guests who are in studio with us live let them tell us. We have in studio the CEO of Skills Canada, Sean Thorson, and Ingrid Wheeler, who is the uh, World Skills 2013 competitor in Leipzig, Germany, uh, in IT office software. She's from Steinbach and is a Skills Canada alumnus. So thank you so much to the both of you, Sean and Ingrid. Sean, we'll start with you. First of all, before we actually talk about the competition, what is Skills Canada? Yeah, Skills Canada is a national not-for-profit association that uh, was really designed to promote trades and technological education for young people. So try to uh, offer activities and events to make sure that young people understand educational pathways, career options as they're related to trades and technology careers, and so that they're very well informed when they're trying to make that decision on post-secondary education and a career. How much of this is driven by industry, Sean? Uh, a lot of it is uh, is driven by industry. Uh, we work with uh, industry, labor, government, education to make sure that we're developing programs that are relevant to the skills that industry uh, are looking for. Uh, also making sure that we're developing those programs in such a way that uh, they're... Uh, they are relevant to the levels of education and and the age of the people that we're dealing with so that uh, proper skill sets are being delivered to students at a proper age that will help them transition into the workforce. So what's the Skills Canada national competition? So the national competition uh, brings together approximately 550 of the top students in trades and technology areas from across the country. There are 40 different occupational areas. Uh, with that are pretty wide ranging that touch on a lot of sectors. Uh, uh, we have uh, carpentry competitions, welding, aircraft maintenance, IT networking, uh, IT office uh, solutions. There's hospitality competitions, some leadership competitions, manufacturing. So a, a real broad range of categories. The students that are at the national competition have qualified through provincial or territorial competitions. So they are already the best from their province and territory. Uh, and now they're here to test their skills against the best in the country. Uh, and uh, if they are some of the best in the country, then they'll be recognized with gold, silver, or bronze medals. So very uh, similar to a lot of uh, athletic events uh, in, in that nature. So Ingrid, you participated in 2013, correct? In the right. Canada, the Skills Canada National Competition. You were clearly victorious because you were sent <laughs> halfway around the world or a quarter of a way around the world to Leipzig, Germany. Uh, what were you doing and what part of the competition did you compete and and what has been the benefit for you in, in competing and winning this, this competition? Well, they keep changing the, the name of mine. So uh, for me, when I competed, it was IT Software Solutions for Business. And uh, I, I mean, it's, it's helped me a lot. Like I started even before 2013, I started competing when I was in grade 11. Um, I did my first provincials and was shocked when I got um, the silver medal. So I'm like, I'm, I'm definitely doing this again. So then I, next year, when I was in grade 12, I did the um, provincials again, won gold, got to go to Quebec City for nationals. And uh, I was blown away when I got the gold medal there. 
Now, I was expecting to go to internationals that year, but it wasn't the qualifying year. So I was told, sorry, you know, if you want to qualify, you're going to have to come back next so year. So you win nationals and they tell you you can't go to the international competition. It's such a huge event. They only do it every other year. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, so then, fast forward, you enter again when you're out of high school? Yes. Um, I believe it's just post-secondary students that got to go to internationals anyway. So I was in university. I competed again, and I was pretty disappointed when, you know, obviously it's, it's a whole different ballgame in the post-secondary level, and I got bronze. And I was just so disappointed with, with myself, and I'm like, you know, I could have done better. And I know I should be happy I got a medal, but I'm, I'm just so upset with myself and then as I'm walking off the stage they call me to the side and I'm like what's going on they're like well there's an age limit for the internationals and bronze and gold and silver were too old so you're going to internationals so Fabulous. I was uh, pretty blown away by that yeah. no kidding neat uh so and I don't think I've actually mentioned this yet the skills Canada national competition by the way is happening uh, tomorrow and Friday at Winnipeg's Convention Center, and it's going to be hosted the country's only national multi-trade and technology competition. Uh, how long has this been around, Ingrid? By the way, I don't remember anything like this being around when I was when I was your age. Oh, the competitions. I don't know, Sean, how long have we been around? Yeah, so we uh, started offering national competitions in 1994. Uh, obviously, they were a lot smaller at that point, and, and we've had some great growth in the competitions. Uh, and uh, probably the, the most significant difference is when we initially started offering competitions, we were really trying to make sure that students had a pa- that had a passion for a particular skill set could identify with peers and see other young people that also shared that passion. We've continued that, but we've now added more activities, try a trade and technology activities where we've switched to a visitor experience. So students that maybe have never uh, participated in any classes or every or tried a trade or technology occupation can come to the competition site and they can try something. They can try and build a brick wall, wire a circuit board, color someone's hair, uh, and so we'll have about ten thousand students from uh, from the Manitoba area that will be visiting the competition site over the couple of days. I remember going to the career symposium. And the interactive booths were always the most popular ones, right? Ingrid's nodding yeah. her head. She remembers <laughs> that, the convention center. And, of course, you got your sheet and you had to fill out, you know, four or five booths or ten booths that you visited, etc. And it was not necessarily very interactive. It sounds as though, Sean, that this is very interactive. This is an opportunity to really see what a trade or a specialty could look like for someone who's considering it. Yeah, the, the competition challenges and the try, and tra- try a trade and technology activities have been designed by industry and education. So they do reflect what industry is looking for, the skill sets. And our goal is to put tools and materials in the hands of students so that they understand if I were to pursue this as a career, here's the type of tools and equipment that I would be working with. Uh, and gives them a better understanding of the complexities that are involved in these occupations. Is this a place where industry leaders maybe come to the competition and see it as like a recruiting ground? Uh, absolutely. The, these are the best and brightest young people in trades and technology from across the country. So there, there are instances where uh, companies come on site and offer people jobs and uh, or tell them if they're interested in pursuing an apprenticeship program, you, 
you contact me. We can set you up. We'll get you started, uh, help you through that process. So, so definitely a great opportunity for business to recruit people and a great opportunity for students to start establishing that network of how they get into the workforce. So, Ingrid, I have to know, what is it that you did to impress the judges? What was your, what was your entry into the competition? Well, it's in the IT office solutions, it's a unique area because it's it's more like they give you a mock company and then you have to, and they'll give you like a list of problems that they're facing and whatnot and you have to provide solutions. And it's up to you to figure out the best solutions and how to um, how to uh, give them something that will be uh, user-friendly that you don't have to be there to implement and, and they'll be able to do it. Um, what exactly I did to impress? I'm not sure. I guess uh, I just... Uh, did my best and, and it was good enough. <laughs> so how does it work? Is it something where they tell you ahead of time, this is what you're going to be doing, get to work, like start working on it now and then present your project when you show up? Or do- No, they'll give you the industry that the company will be in and you can do some research on the industry, but the actual company and what their problems are, you aren't presented until competition. And you have the two days of competition to come up with a solution and present it to the judges. So did you have to put together office solutions for yes. workflow management or what was the what was the task? Pretty much anything you can think of. So it could be, you know, their database is a mess. You have to either fix it or organize it. Um, they need help with... Uh, some media presentations like a, a PowerPoint or a brochure or something or some sort of um, dashboard, Excel dashboard that will do some, you know, crazy calculations for them or whatever. So you like the computer world? I do, yes. So what are you doing now? Do we want to save that question for after yeah. weather update? Yeah, let's let's take a look at the forecast. Uh, we have in studio with us, you were just hearing the voice of Ingrid Wheeler. She is a Skills Canada alumnus. She has been very successful at these competitions. And the CEO of Skills Canada, Sean Thorson, are both in studio with us. The 2017 Skills Canada National Competition is happening tomorrow and Friday at the the convention center and it's bringing uh, 550 secondary and post-secondary competitors from across Canada and approximately 10,000 student visitors just from Manitoba will be checking this thing out. So we'll carry on the chat after your forecast, which is up next. 2.49 on this Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for taking part of your day to spend it with us. I'm Greg. He's Brett. We're talking about the 2017 Skills Canada National Competition taking place here in Winnipeg. Is this the first time Winnipeg's playing host to this big celebration, Sean? The uh, event was actually held here back in 2004, so it uh, it we're happy to be back in 2017, and uh, we were in the the convention center in 2004. But obviously, with the expansion, that has been great for us because our event has grown, and uh, so luckily, luckily for us, the expansion has allowed us to bring the event back here to Winnipeg. Ingrid Wheeler is also here. She's a 2013. Uh, well, we found out she's a bronze medal winner, but because of when she was born, she got to represent Canada in Leipzig, Germany back in 2013. And, and now you're a business owner in Steinbach, is that right? That is correct. So tell us a little bit about your business. Uh, you're on the air. You've got at least five other people listening today. <laughs> you might as well tell us about what you're up to. Uh, I currently, I, well, I started a business in the um, financial services industry. So that's what I've been keeping myself busy with lately. When did you start that? Um, I got licensed uh, in February. It was a year ago. What's the name of the business? I'm associated with World Financial Group. Okay. Yeah. And uh, was that always the goal, to start your own business? Absolutely. Why yeah. did you want to do that? Just to have control of your time, 
not, not have someone else tell you when what you can or can't do and when you can do it, when you can take vacation and whatnot. To be in control of your own life. Tell yourself when you have to work 20-hour days. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the side of entrepreneurship I think people forget, right? That flexibility is flexible only if you're able to, to take some time. And it's, it's certainly not for everyone. Some outstanding celebrity judges uh, coming to town over the next few days. Sean, maybe can you tell us a little bit about who's coming to see us? I see on the list here one guy that uh, jumps out for me, uh, TV celebrity contractors, Kate Campbell and a guy that I love to watch is Paul LaFrance. I love to watch him build a deck. I wonder if I could steal him for about six hours on Saturday afternoon, get him into my backyard. Everybody wants to do that. <laughs> yeah, we, no, we're, uh, we are very fortunate that we have a number of celebrities. So Paul LaFrance, Kate Campbell, uh, Mike Holmes Jr., Sherry Holmes are, are also going to be in attendance. Uh, and that's great for us because we, we really want to inspire young people to look at what they can do in trades and technology careers and where uh, participation in those careers and those sectors of the economy can lead. Uh, and young people are sometimes attracted by by celebrities and and people that are on television. And and uh, so it's, it's great to have that kind of support and that uh, – uh, that kind of uh, excitement that those people bring to the event uh, and they really inspire, uh, I think, everyone that either competes in our competitions or has the opportunity to cross paths with them as, as visitors to the event uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for us. We're very happy about that. Now, as far as anybody who is listening to this who wants to check out the competition, uh, it's open 9 until 4 Thursday, Friday at the Convention Centre? That is correct. And it's free to the public, but in terms of cost, there, there actually is a rather significant economic impact because of this event coming to Manitoba. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the... Uh, Obviously, it's a, it's a pretty large event. Uh, we have about 2,000 registered delegates that are coming into the city that are playing different roles. So uh, the, the people that are not only the competitors, but you have individuals that are traveling with the teams. Uh, we have companies, sponsors, partners, suppliers uh, that have uh, made the trip into the city that are participating actively, providing equipment, material. So it it, uh, it does make a significant impact on the local economy, and and uh, we're we're obviously very happy happy about that. It's interesting that trades and technology are quite commonly marketed together in terms of uh, we've got different trade and technology schools have become a big thing, but they seem almost divergent in terms of the type of people that they might attract. Uh, trades, I'm thinking in particular, is it a dying art to a lot of the trades? I get the impression that that really is a huge opportunity for workers of the future to go down the trades route uh, just because the most skilled individuals in certain trades are starting to retire and there's a gigantic opportunity there to be employed for an awfully long time. Yeah, the, the, d- definitely you have different personality types in those different occupational mm-hmm. areas and, and that's one of the reasons that we have a pretty broad range of offerings because we want to have something there for everyone. Every student that comes to the competition site can see themselves somewhere in one of those activities. Uh, and trades, uh, trades obviously uh, some great opportunities, and it's also interesting how technology is making an impact on 
trades careers. So when we talk about technologies, we're talking about technology-focused careers, but we're also talking about how is technology making impacts on what we would consider traditional trade areas, using laser-level devices in landscape gardening, for example, diagnostic equipment in automotive service uh, shops. So significant changes that are taking place, and we use the competitions as a way to show young people that Trades are changing. This is this is the type of equipment and material that you'll be working with now if you pursue one of these occupations. Well, Ingrid, how much of an impact did this competition, did these competitions have on uh, your career path? A huge impact. Um, growing up, I had very low self-esteem. I didn't ever think I'd amount to much of anything. And uh, when my high school teacher got me involved with uh, um, with the skills competitions, you know, I, I started to believe in myself. I started, you know, my, my vision just grew, especially like going to nationals, internationals. I was like, I can do whatever I want. Like, who's going to stop me, right? So it's had a huge impact in my life for sure. And how old are you now? 23. 23. So did you go to university? Or, I did, Or yes. college? Okay. How long were you in university for? Uh, I went to the U of M for four years. Okay. What did you graduate in? I got my Bachelor's of Commerce. Good for you. And so this whole idea, a word that we like to use on this program is mentorship and the idea that certain organizations create those lifelong connections and that opportunity to count on one another. Have you got some relationships that have lasted since your competitions? Oh, for sure. I'm still very much close to my coach who who got me involved with skills in the first place. Um, She's become a really good friend of mine. So we're definitely always in contact. And there's also with some, you know, past competitors, like keep in contact with a few of them. Well, listen, thank you so much to the two of you for, for telling us a little bit about this. It sounds like just a really neat event. It's the 2017 Skills Canada National Competition. So once again, 550 secondary and post-secondary competitors from across Canada will be here in Winnipeg tomorrow and Friday at the Convention Centre. The event is happening from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. both days. If you want to check it out, it's free. You can go check it out. And Ingrid Wheeler... Uh, is a Seals Canada alumnus. She now owns her own business in Steinbach. And Sean Thorson, based out of Gatineau, Quebec, he joined us live here. He is the CEO of Skills Canada. Sean and Ingrid, what a pleasure to meet the both of you. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. It is coming up to 3 o'clock on 680 CJOB. 308 Furmore, St. Mary's, stay away for the immediate uh, future. Still closed. It was a nightmare In the morning rush hour, it's been borderline nightmare all day long. It will be your worst nightmare if you go through there or go try to get through there throughout the uh, evening rush hour. So just do yourself a favor and like go all the way around the perimeter if you have to. Tongue in cheek there, but it might be your best option to use the perimeter and just get as far away from that intersection as you can as the investigation uh, continues into that serious uh, incident involving a cyclist and a man, the pictures and the video up at uh, cgob.com are uh, fairly startling. And did you mention in the news that people actually lifted the SUV off the cyclist? Yes, I did. Wow. It's an incredible story. We're going to tell you about something that's happening in Winnipeg that I'll tell you. It's the fifth annual uh, first time I'm hearing of it, so please accept my apologies as we welcome to the airways with us Scott Fitzpatrick. He is filmmaker and co-director of Woof, the Winnipeg Underground Film Festival. It happens June 1st to the 4th. Thanks for taking some time with us today, Scott. No problem. Thanks for having me on. So tell us a little bit about the history of the Winnipeg Underground Film Festival. Yeah, this is our. we're going into our fifth year. Uh, we started 
started in 2013 uh, as a completely curated festival. Uh, for the last four, we've done an international open call. So uh, we are presenting films from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, all across the world, um, kind of any form of alternative or experimental cinema you can imagine. Why is it called Underground? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it actually gets discussed quite a lot. Um at our festival and amongst our team, why we're an underground festival. Um, kind of has to do with the uh, the international community of festivals that uh, are similar. Um, so we're aligning ourselves with uh, shows like the Milwaukee Underground Film Festival or the Montreal Underground Film Festival. There's kind of uffs all over the world. Um, I don't even think we're the only woof. <laughs> but... Uh, so it's it's a way to kind of signal that this is um, an alternative ex a cinema experience that you're going to get, um, and also to insert ourselves in that kind of community, larger international community of festivals. I'm looking at the billboard here on your website, WinnipegUFF.com. If you just Google Woof W U F F, you will you'll get here quite easily. And the billboard here, uh, your tagline seems to be, I keep my eyes wide open all the time. What sort of things are we going to see? What types of <laughs> films might we see by keeping our eyes wide open at the Woof? Oh, you're going to see every kind of film you can imagine. We have uh, animation, documentaries, um, essay films, live performances. Uh, we're showing some... Uh, kind of alternative, flashy eye candy films uh, to be watched through fireworks glasses on uh, on Saturday night, which is pretty weird. Um, that that line in particular, though, I keep my eyes wide open all the time. That's of course an appropriated Johnny Cash lyric that we actually borrowed from uh, a Los Angeles-based filmmaker that we're bringing in uh, to feature a whole program of her work. Her name is Ali Peoples. So um, that's another way that we're kind of signaling. Uh, a community connection by adopting this uh, this phrase that she's used in her own work. Um, and we're showing a retrospective program of her work on Sunday, June 4th. What are fireworks glasses? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> fireworks glasses are these uh, kind of goofy novelty. They're not 3D glasses, but, you know, they, they're similar. Um, they'll give them out at, uh, like, fireworks shows or laser shows. I think they give them out at the... Um, Assiniboine Downs holiday light display, and uh, basically they just refract the light coming into your eyes. So every pinpoint of light that you see will have rainbows kind of shooting off of it in all directions. So I've I've personally gone through and kind of scoured scoured the world for the best films that that suit these glasses and that get the the most bang and experience out of them. It eliminates um, the need for LSD, I guess. <laughs> absolutely. Although I wouldn't, you know, I mean, if if you want to do that too, that's <laughs> and, uh, and it's a late it's a late night program too. So it's perfect for that. Scott Fitzpatrick is a filmmaker, co-director of the Winnipeg Underground Film Festival. It's the fifth annual. Uh, uh, no apologies required if you've never heard of this before. It is really sounds like a, a neat program, Scott. Uh, talk a little bit about the uh, about where this is taking place. Sure, we're actually in uh, three venues across town this year. This is our first time kind of spreading ourselves out like this. Um, so on our opening night, which is actually this Thursday, uh, we're going to be at 4th, the coffee shop on McDermott. We have a screening of films there starting at 8, and then we have uh, three live performances um, by some local people, Doreen Girard and Marie-France Ollier are doing a performance for us, and we are bringing in some uh, filmmakers from Montreal and Minneapolis as well to perform on that night. 
And then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we're going to be at the Rachel Brown Theater. That's on 211 Bannatine Avenue. Um, Directions and everything to all of our venues are on our website, which you uh, gave already. It's winnipeguff.com. And then we're also going to have some videos installed at uh, the new Poolside Gallery, which Video Pool just opened up. That's in the Art Space Building at 100 Arthur Street on the second floor. We have uh, four video installations up there, and those are actually live as of today. You can go and check those out today if you want. Fantastic. Is, is it safe to say that this is maybe the kind of event that somebody who is sort of sick of the Hollywood machine, but still very much enjoys to watch movies. Is this uh, maybe a a good place for an alternative to uh, the typical stuff that gets pumped into the the big box office? Definitely. I I would hope that anybody feeling that kind of angst uh, comes down and checks out our show. Um, You're going to see all kinds of... uh, really challenging work, but really fun work as well. I think um, the way we do our program, we we construct kind of thematically linked blocks of films. So there's something to guide you through. It's not too confounding, but uh, these are are definitely not films that are trying to spoon feed their audience or talk down to their audience. Um, But there's lots to love, (laughs) lots to be inspired by and uh, be taken aback by. Right on. Scott, you'll have to come down and visit us one day. Uh, I dig your vibe, man. Like, I'd love to sit down and talk to you a little bit more about independent filmmaking and and, uh, the scene here in Winnipeg. Can we uh, make arrangements to make that happen? Anytime. Yeah, that'd be great. Right on. That's Scott Fitzpatrick, filmmaker, co-director of the Winnipeg Underground Film Festival. Starts tomorrow, goes through until Sunday. Check out their website, winnipeguff, winnipeguff.com. Want to let you know, lights out are... Not a good intersection. Henderson, north of the perimeter, and we've got a crash eastbound Academy in the right lane between Harrow and Stafford. Keep that in mind as you're uh, starting out the drive home this afternoon. We'll get more traffic details with Casey Gibb coming up in a couple of minutes on 680 CJOB. I'm Greg. He's Brett. We're going to give some stuff away. Just had to cue that up there. Did I mess you up? No. Okay. No, no. I forgot to have my audio oh, turned on. Oh, because you were really quick on the draw there, and then you were... <laughs> uh, sorry if I messed nope. you up there, buddy. No, I uh, I pulled the trigger before I realized that my audio was not turned on. Uh, there is a sequence of events that need to take place in a certain order, and uh, you were out of order. Is yeah. that what you're saying? I was out of order. You are out of order, sir. <laughs> we have tickets for Cirque du Soleil. Curios. Cabinet of Curiosities. It's on this Friday, June 2nd to July 9th, under the big top at Keniston and Sterling Lion. And today's question involves the history of Curios. Specifically want to know, when did it debut? When did Curios premiere? And in what city? 204-780-6868 is the number to call. Again, when did Cirque du Soleil Curios debut? And in what city, if you know the answer to this question, you can pick up the phone and call 204-780-6868 and you will go to see Cirque du Soleil, Curios, at some point during its production. Are you going on Friday? Do you know I am that going yet? on Friday. You're going to be able to make it? I'm making it on Friday. Yay! I'm missing baseball to go to Cirque du Soleil on Friday. It was a hard decision for me. I don't like missing my kids' baseball games. I don't mind missing when it's three degrees outside. <laughs> when okay. it's 29, it makes it a little bit more difficult. I like to be there, but no, I'll be there in the stands. I cannot wait to see the show, in fact. Yeah, it looks like uh, it's going to be a good time. So 
very excited about that. So 204-780-6868 is the number to call. We are going to, after the 3.30 news, we're going to hear from Christian. Is that correct? Christian O'Mell. He was uh, hanging out with the Bombers, but in a different capacity yesterday. He wasn't on the field. He was helping out behind the scenes. Kind of a cool feature. He's kind of our quirky affairs managing editor slash director, performer. Fill in the word for yeah. Christian. Looking well. forward to this. Yeah, feeding the, the headline here is feeding the bombers. I'd be curious to know what his appetite is compared to the bombers because he eats a ton. Yeah, for a tall, skinny guy, my word. Well, he's not—he's not that skinny. He's kind of a kind of a muscly guy, no? Okay, he's thin. He's a big guy. He's thin. He's got a—he's a growing boy. He needs yeah. to feed. Strapping lad. <laughs> Never seen anybody eat more food than 680 CGOP's <laughs> Christian O'Mell. I don't know how he does it. So we're coming up to 323 while Jeff Fortier looks for a winner for the Cirque du Soleil Cabinet of Curiosities. Oh, we have a winner. Josie Fink. Josie Fink. Congratulations. You have won the tickets to Cirque du Soleil. Curios. The answer to the question, when did it premiere and in what city? It's April 24th, 2014 in Montreal. So Josie Fink, congratulations to you. Up next, we'll have a quick look at the forecast and then sports. On the sixth anniversary of the NHL returning to Winnipeg, we're going to visit Winnipeg Blue Bomber training camp. Got underway on Sunday. We're in the heart of it. 90 players working hard twice a day. And you know those players are working up quite the hunger, especially the linemen. We work up a hunger around here, Brett. We got chips in the newsroom. They might be all gone by now or by the time we get out of here, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Christian Amell, our quirky affairs reporter, correspondent, asked the question, just how much food does the team go through in a day? He got to spend a morning inside the kitchen at Investors Group Field. It's a typical training camp morning deep in the bowels of IGF. There's always a bunch of things going on at once in the kitchen. And on this day, there are three. Feed the bombers three meals a day, feed a corporate function in the evening, and prep their entire sweet menu for the upcoming season for sweet holders to taste test. It's a well-oiled machine, about a dozen people in the kitchen. Pretty team, really. But on game day? Game day is, say, 25 buffets, plus the team, plus all the sweets, plus all the high-end VIP stuff. It's a never-ending day. That's executive chef Paul Massery. He's been a chef for three decades, and his first year with the Bombers was their last year at the old stadium. He admits there was a heck of a learning curve. I had no idea, right? I walked in, I said, okay, each guy's going to eat a chicken breast and a half, uh, not seven chicken breasts. And the first couple days, we are running to keep more food going. You know, I had one guy eat five pounds of potatoes, and he said to me, chef, can I take this? And I said, as long as you eat it, man, you can take whatever you want. Five pounds. I can't even fathom that in a stomach. If you're wondering what was for breakfast, well... 100 pounds of bacon or 100 pounds of sausage. Oatmeal like crazy. They love their oatmeal. Fresh apple juice, orange juice, eggs, 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 right? Eggs is their big protein. It ends up rolling out to about 8 to 10 eggs a person. Like when you look at that on the table, like it's just a giant amount of food and gone, you know? And then to come back for lunch, same thing, boom. I've never worked in a kitchen before, so this was all an eye-opening experience. The sheer amount of equipment, tools, storage, spices blew my mind. Without a game plan, we'd be crushed. And without, like, we have, like, I call them MVPs in the kitchen, and they need to know what their team is working on, make sure everyone's doing the right thing, it's all getting put away properly, labeled, dated, because if one part of the team lets go, 
the next guys that take over who are looking for that product, they're lost. And as soon as it's time you're spending looking for something, it's time something's not cooking. So it just kills us. Today's lunch is jambalaya, Cajun specialty, and a lot of it. When I say a lot, I mean over 100 pounds of jambalaya and 100 pounds of rice. We did a hot Italian and a uh, chorizo, but I also have a like a pizza sausage, so it's a mild one. Those guys will know how it's supposed to taste, because a lot of them from the south, right? So it's really cool when you feed them something, they go, ah, oh, this tastes like home. Chef Paul tosses in some stock, and start to finish, the process takes about two hours. And Chef Paul is the kind of chef that likes to be in the middle of the action. You know, I hate sitting in an office. It drives me crazy. And winters, everyone says, you know, well, you got all winter, you sit around and do nothing. I go, really? Because we have to rebuild everything for the next season. I also have a lot of friends who are chefs. We also hang out. We're picking each other's brains all the time, right? And I also stay really in tune of what's happening in the food industry. And what's hot right now? Apparently cauliflower. But that's not on today's menu. Alas, the clock strikes one and it's lunchtime for the bombers. Players trickle into the media area on the suite level, many piling food onto two plates. Jumbo, rice, buns, lots of salad. The verdict? It's good. My salad was very healthy and this tastes good. Got a little bit of spice in there. Got the sausage and the chicken. Pretty good. It's all about quantity right now. It's great, man. Jumbo is real good. Yeah. Nice noodle. Switch up. Pretty solid, though. Rice goes great with it. Chef Paul takes a brief visit upstairs before heading back down to the kitchen. He'll spend close to 12 hours at the stadium on this day, but that's nothing compared to a game day. 18-20. And when I leave on game day, I'm just done. My legs are done. My feet are killing me. So what's the next day look like? It's huge, because it's a cleanup day. So if you don't get a time to break, not a chance. We're back at 7 a.m. That may sound daunting, but it's part of why he shows up for work every day. My barbecue sauce took me 12 years to make the recipe. It's the barbecue sauce we make here every day. You gotta love doing what you do, and I love doing what I do. Jeff Paul says he usually loses about 10 people after the season opener because they can't keep up. But those that stick it out form a great team in the kitchen, feeding dozens of hungry mouths, trying to put together an equally cohesive unit on the field. And if those bombers on the field can work as well together as the kitchen does, they could go a pretty long way this year. Christian O'Mell. Global News. Just doing the math roughly, I was about 60, six zero dozen eggs <laughs> made for breakfast for about 90 players. 60 dozen. 60 dozen, eight to nine each. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Primary source of protein. That's amazing. Get your eggs here. Thanks, Christian. That was a great behind the scenes look or listen to what happens at Blue Bomber Training Camp. Uh, you can look forward to another one of Christian's quirky reports this afternoon as he investigates uh, whether or not the honeymoon is over economically and with fans as it pertains to the Winnipeg Jets who came home six years ago today in the form of the Atlanta Thrashers. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you through until four o'clock. Matt Cardi, Julie Buckingham, they are in the on deck circle. They'll come by and pay a visit in just a moment. I actually bought a ticket. For the Max Millions and the, uh, was it, did you say $55 million jackpot? $55 million for Lotta Max, yep. I'm going to go on the air. I'm going to go on the record right now. If I win all $55 million, Brett McGarry, <laughs> I'm giving you $1 million bucks. Oh. Yay! <laughs> wow! What? What, what do I get? Money? 50 bucks? What? He's my partner in crime. Yeah? Yeah. 
Well, Plus, I won't be here Monday, and I don't want thing, him here. I it, won't, don't want him here by himself, so I'll have to send actually, him a check. I, I think if you gave him a million, he wouldn't be here Monday either. <laughs> that, that's exactly maybe, the point. Maybe I'd be here Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe not so much Monday. But here's the thing. <laughs> Good manners would dictate that you shouldn't make offers like that in front of other people. Why? Because I think that's rude. What's rude? That's like offering, saying, hey, Brad, I have a plate of cookies. You're my partner. I'll offer you one. And Matt and I are sitting here and going, oh, I'd like a cookie, too. That happens all the time around here. No, you guys it are out there eating chips right now, aren't you? No. That's you, a free yes, for all, are. though. But you, you are welcome, eating chips. You are the, welcome mm-hmm. to come out and eat the chips. We're kind of busy. Hello. We're talking have. in here. So next time you <laughs> offer him a million dollars of your non-existent around? money. Okay, I'll you do it off the air, too. That's right. Yeah. Person, the person on the other end of the radio right now is going to think that we're like the, a newsroom divided, but that's, <laughs> that's not the case. It kind of is. Oh. I'm just trying to teach My some, offer stands. I appreciate just trying it. Just trying to teach some manners. Witness, the, the witnesses We should have here. a manners expert on. Uh, yeah, Lou Bear. Civility expert. Yeah, I think you should have her on. She's great. She would tell you that what you've done is rude. I'm good at that. What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Um, (laughs) what What have you done today? Basically. Um, we heard from Mike Kong not too long ago doing the weather there, and I understand he was a little starstruck today. So it kind of got us thinking, who have you met in your life, Brett? And Greg, that kind of got you a little like we have the opportunity in this job to meet a lot of different people. We're very fortunate that way. Has there been anybody that you've come across that you kind of were like, whoa, this is cool? Brett McGarry. I remember the first okay. time I spoke to him on the phone. Okay. And he told me I'd Love qualified for continues. Talk Idol. And I said, I'm speechless. That's probably not a good thing for a guy who wants to work on the radio. <laughs> uh, for me, it was Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar did. I met him down in Cabo San Lucas. Uh, I tried to be cool. Oh, no, very planned. Okay. Uh, Very planned. Uh, New Year's Eve, 1999, we we bought tickets to see him play in his bar, one of 400 people. There was three of us there. Yeah. And we had a great time, but we got word of when we could meet him a couple of days before the show. And And you were like... Yeah, I I wasn't calm, cool, and collected as I like to be. I got over it fairly quickly, but uh, that was when I was absolutely most tongue-tied. What about for you, Brett? Well, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, I guess my... Poor manners would be that I wasn't listening to you. What was your question? <laughs> what was your question? Who did you meet that you were starstruck? <laughs> you were speechless. What were you doing over there? I just wasn't. It was kind of daydreaming. <laughs> I, I was thinking of uh, the $55 million that Greg's going to win. <laughs> First of all, I've not offered fake money. Second of all, he's already at this point Real where he's money. like, Real money. tuned me out. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the question is, who have I met that I was starstruck? Yeah, because yeah. we get to meet a lot of a lot of people in this job. Anybody really kind of have you? No. Kind no. Of, I don't know. Bob Irving. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I met Bob was pretty cool. Well, that's cool. I mean, hey, if it's a local celeb, then that's hey, Can I play along? Can I play along? <clears throat> Julie. Were you ever tongue-tied by meeting anyone famous? Uh, there's a couple. Oh, okay. Um, one I'll save for the show. The other one was I got to meet Wayne Gretzky, and we over at the Viscount Gort mm-hmm. and rode down in the elevator, and I was probably about 10. Okay. I, and I he was that. in his early, tw- like in the heyday, right? Oh, Near yeah. His early 20s. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I didn't say a whole lot. Matt Cardi? Uh, for me, growing up as a big Leafs fan, I always throw that out for some reason, but it was Pat Quinn. When I first met Pat Quinn, bench boss, and he was he's a giant. 
compare it to me when I was 11, 12 years old, right? He just towered over you. So he just sort of had that presence. And I was, he said, I think he said, hey, guys, I was with my brother and I just sort of stared up at him. <laughs> That's pretty much what I did with uh, with Gretzky. So we'll talk about that at, at uh, 5.15 and find out who uh, starstruck Mike Konkin. Uh, also, later in the show, Bob Thompson. He's a professor of media and pop culture at Syracuse University. He's going to weigh in on uh, Kathy Griffin's social media gaffe and uh, talk a little bit about that. And a really important story right off the top. We're hearing lots about Carla Homolka volunteering at the school in Montreal. We will have on the Canadian Centre for Child Protection here in Winnipeg to tell us if something like that could happen here. I'm wondering if uh, Mike Conkin, when he reveals who he was starstruck by, if the answer is going to be Richard Cloutier. It Could may be. It, be. It, it probably is. Yeah? Yeah. It's not. <laughs> He'll say that, though. <laughs> I know already, and it would uh, And you know yeah. what? I know I know. Mike secretly misses Richard, and so I kind of feel... I little... secretly miss him, too. <laughs> 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 there may be some fingers crossed on that one. Okay, everyone. Danny. Let's go but, nicely to the sandbox. Danny, by the way, has texted Julie saying, good manners dictate that Julie should not have pointed out the money offer that Greg made. Ooh, how the tables have turned. No, no, no. I'm okay with it. <laughs> There'll be something under the Christmas tree for you too, Julie. Okay, Don't worry. see? I know that's what we were fishing what, for. Well, of course. And, and me, you know, I might <laughs> get a few hundred bucks here and there. I'm giving a million to McGarry. He can spread it around amongst you lunatics. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, of course, all goes to whether or not you win it as opposed to I win it. Oh, you have a oh. ticket also? Hello, I have a ticket. Oh, Julie, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you nothing but luck. Yeah, yeah we'll, we yeah. will have a good time. I'm quite sure if someone wins the $55 oh, million here in the building. Oh, wouldn't it be something else? My gosh. That, that's almost too much money. Julie Buckingham, Matt Cardi, thank you so much. They will be on the news from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling, Jeff Fortier in Master Control. Hey, I'm going to see Wonder Woman tonight. I'm excited about that. I'll tell you about that. Woot woot. I probably won't be able to tell you about that until Friday. Usually there's embargoes and that kind of stuff. I'll see. Maybe maybe tomorrow I can tell I you. I promise I won't, ask, I won't ask tomorrow. I promise. <laughs> okay. Uh, the news is coming up next.